Well, hey, good morning. Um, I mentioned last week that there was a, a chance that we would have a uh, guest preacher today. And, uh, well, I'm here with Bible in hand, so that means that we don't. Um, <laughs> uh, things fell through uh, last minute and, um, uh, well, not last minute, uh, but anyways, things didn't work out, so he won't be joining us today. Uh, so hopefully we'll have him uh, come because if you know James, you know um, He's just an incredible human being and a, a great preacher and somebody that um, I think is worth uh, us hearing from. Uh, but for today, um, you got me. So um, today we're going to be uh, wrapping up our uh, series of I Pledge Allegiance, uh, exploring what it means to be a kingdom citizen. Um, but more than uh, it being the last Sunday of this series, um, like Bob said, it's also uh, what's called Christ the King Sunday. Um, so within the, the liturgical calendar or the, the church calendar, um, this is the last week of the year. Um, so next Sunday, we'll, we'll start Advent, which is uh, basically New Year's in the, the church calendar. Um, but today's Christ the King Sunday. And uh, one of the ways that the liturgical calendar works is that um, throughout the year, it tells uh, the story of Jesus and it tells the story of what it means to be part of the people of God. And uh, recognize like it comes to this climactic end with where we acknowledge and where we confess that Christ is king. <laughs> um, not, uh, not Caesar, um, not President Trump, not President-elect Biden, but Christ is king. And um, what, a, what a fitting way uh, to end the series of I Pledge Allegiance then uh, with Christ the King Sunday. So as we uh, get ready to jump in uh, this morning, let's pause for a word of prayer. God, uh, we are grateful um, for this chance to gather together. God, we're grateful for the gift of technology and um, the way that it can continue to unite us um, and draw us together, even when there's something like uh, the coronavirus that wants to keep us separate. God, we are grateful um, that we can be together. And God, we're grateful that as we uh, open up the scriptures, uh, that we can recognize that your spirit is here among us, uh, uh, drawing us, uniting us, meeting us, among us in each of our homes, wherever we may be. And God, what a profound mystery, but God, we are so grateful for that. And we ask that your spirit that is among us would um, lead us and guide us and shape us and form us this morning uh, into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. During a presidential election, uh, we hear an awful lot about and learn an awful lot about any particular candidate. Um, so we might uh, hear about their childhood and their upbringing. We might hear about like what college they went to. Uh, we, if they were in politics prior to running for president, maybe we would hear um, what their track record was, what the, how they voted on certain things, their position, where they aligned themselves. If they weren't involved in politics, maybe we would hear about their, um, um, their business or um, uh, entrepreneurial or philanthropic endeavors uh, or whatever it may be. Um, but oftentimes for, for many of us, the first filter that we run any particular candidate through is uh, what we might call like the likability filter. <laughs> Do they seem likable enough, right? Um, like we're talking about their personality. And it's not that we need to feel like buddy-buddy with any particular candidate. Like we don't need to feel like we, have to, like we can sit down and have a cup of coffee with them or anything like that. But we want to know, like, 
do they have a likable personality? Like when they're discussing like national affairs with other political leaders, like, are they able to do so in a way that's favorable for us, we the people? Um, or when things are in crisis mode and they're dealing with other foreign um, uh, political leaders, like can they do that in a way that doesn't lead to ugly things like war, right? Do they have the, the personality that can lead towards like a peaceable resolution? Now, after uh, they get through uh, the likability filter, we might come to the second filter of like the, the policies filter, right? Um, what do they actually think about things? Like what, what sort of political stance do they hold towards any number of issues like the economy or healthcare? And so uh, often what candidates will do will unleash like their position paper on any number of topics. And if they pass the likability test, then maybe we'll give them some time and we'll, we'll read through their, their uh, position papers on the economy or the health or healthcare. But then we come to the third filter, and this is the one that we come to as we draw near to the election. And this is the filter that says, okay, how do you actually plan to govern? <laughs> like we wanna move from the abstract to the concrete because um, if you are elected, it's no longer what's happening in this abstract world, but it's the concrete realities that we the people are facing. So we don't necessarily care about what you think about economy in general, but given the economic situation that we find ourselves in because of the pandemic, how do you plan to approach the economy that leads towards a, a more just and equitable distribution of goods for people? Uh, or given the reality of this pandemic that we find ourselves in, uh, like how do you actually plan to approach healthcare and making sure that um, this awful uh, number of 250,000 American deaths doesn't continue to rise exponentially? And how do you make sure that, that every American can have access to health care? We move from the abstract to the concrete and we ask this question, how do you actually plan to govern? Now, uh, while Jesus wasn't running for president of the United States uh, or campaigning for president of the United States, he was certainly campaigning uh, in, in some sort, right? As we read the life of Jesus, it seems as though he was campaigning um, not for any sort of like uh, earthly kingdom or any sort of earthly political power, but it seems as though Jesus was campaigning for uh, the kingdom of God and his role within this kingdom of God, uh, to be Lord and King of this kingdom. And if we read the Gospels closely, it seems as though we draw, as we draw nearer to uh, Jesus' own version of his election, uh, his death and his resurrection, um, that it appears that Jesus begins to actually answer this question of like, how do you actually plan to govern? Um, so uh, as we get to Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 21, we see uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the last time. And this is leading into the final week of his life. And for a first century Jew, uh, Jerusalem wasn't just any old city. But this was the, the city. This is the, the center of life and faith and culture for a first century Jew. And so the city is just saturated with all sorts of meaning. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time. And Jesus keeps doing what he's been doing throughout his entire ministry. He's, he keeps talking and teaching about the kingdom of God. But if we pay attention, we notice a shift in the, the tone of this teaching. Because prior to this, we see like this beautiful uh, presentation about like the, the beauty and the grandeur and the radical inclusive nature of, of the, this kingdom of God that's saturated in love. But as we get to Matthew 21, we see the tone shifting towards something like judgment. <laughs> now, uh, 
I think for most of us, judgment is a bit of an uncomfortable word, particularly when it's used from somebody like me in whatever sort of makeshift pulpit this is. Um, and while judgment uh, is far too big of a conversation for the one that we're having today, um, suffice it to say that when Jesus talks about judgment, it seems as though he's talking about judgment, which establishes justice, um, a, a right ordering of society. And this establishing of justice leads towards the restoration of all things. So judgment leads towards a reordering, which leads to the restoration of me, which leads to the restoration of you, which leads to the restoration of us, creation itself, and the very cosmos in which we find ourselves in. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about judgment. And so throughout these, these teachings on judgment, we see him talking about the, the importance of, of watching and waiting for the kingdom to be fully revealed. We see him talking about the, the need for um, uh, faithfulness to the way of Jesus uh, for when this kingdom is fully revealed. And we see him talking about the importance of being prepared for when this kingdom of God is fully revealed. So as he approaches the end of this teaching on judgment, we see him beginning to shift and describe like, okay, here's how I will actually plan to govern now. So in Matthew 25 verse 31 we see him uh, beginning to address this question. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. Then the king, and we'll stop there. Now notice that uh, in just these few verses, Jesus has used like loaded, saturated language um, that we find all throughout the Old Testament. So one of the, the terms that he uses here is the term shepherd. Uh, and we see throughout the Old Testament, God being referred to as the shepherd of Israel. Now, a shepherd is the one who uh, um, leads and guides and protects and provides for the flocks uh, of sheep and goats. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God saying, like, this is my role for you, my people. I'll uh, lead and guide and protect and provide for you. Um, a second term that we see Jesus using here is the term son of man, uh, which is used in the Old Testament, particularly uh, in terms of like judgment sort of passages. And in these passages, we see that the son of man is the one who will come and establish justice. Not just justice for the, the nation of the people of God, but justice for the entire world. And when we talk about justice, we don't mean it as the U.S. criminal justice system, which means like we just lock up people for a while. Um, but we mean it as uh, N.T. Wright uses it, uh, a, a setting of the world to rights, a putting of the things back to rights, of, of bringing wholeness and healing and restoration to the world, a setting things back to the original order that God intended from the very beginning. This is what happens when the Son of Man comes. And then we see Jesus using maybe most the, most, the most audacious term here of king. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, the, the term king is used very, very sparingly throughout the Gospels, um, particularly because this is like one of the most loaded political terms there, there would have been in the day. Um, but Jesus here seems to be tapping into this hope that we see in the Old Testament that God would restore the nation to the people of God and that God's very self would take the throne as their king, no longer needing an earthly king, but that it would be God's very self uh, serving and leading them as their king. So pay attention to what Jesus is doing here. He's grabbing on to these loaded terms and he's saying, I'm it. 
I'm the one who will protect and guide you. I am the one who will lead you. I'm the one who will provide for you. I am going to be your king. And as I'm your king, I'm the one who will bring about establishing justice and putting the world back to rights. Now, after introducing this, he now begins to like move into like how he will actually govern. Uh, So verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So Jesus begins to describe how he will actually govern here. And part of this governing seems to, to be, it seems to involve some sort of like separating, some sort of sorting. And so he separates some people to his right hand, which is like the favorable position to be in. And then he separates some people to his left hand, which is the not so favorable position to be in. And so, you know, uh, this leads to like a pretty obvious question of like, well, how do we end up in the like favorable position, right? Well, Matthew uh, describes those in the favorable position with this word righteous. Meaning like the righteous people are the ones who are sent to the right hand. It's the people who are uh, described by righteousness, who embody righteousness, who are placed at the right hand. Now, when we think of the word righteousness, we often think of it as sort of like a, a personal piety. Um, like it's an inward rightness within my life, that the, the inner world within me is set right and is uh, somehow in line with God's desire for it. But that's only half of this understanding of this robust word of righteousness. Because righteousness doesn't just deal with an internal rightness, it also deals with an outward, external sort of rightness. Um, so it can, uh, uh, rightness can be marked, uh, righteousness can be marked by words like mercy or compassion Or maybe we might use this other big word of justice. This is why the words righteousness and justice are often paired together because it's this big, grand, robust word that deals with the inward reality, the inward rightness, but also the outward reality and the outward rightness of the world in which we find ourselves in. And so uh, Jesus here describes the righteous like this. It's those who give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, welcome to the stranger, clothing to the naked, care to the sick, and visitation to those who are in prison. Notice here that uh, righteousness isn't some sort of like uh, static label for these people. It's not just some sort of fixed position that they are the righteous, but it's a dynamic sort of label. It's a, it's a, a variable position. That is people who are willing to participate in setting the world to rights who are ascribed this label of righteous. It's those who are participating in the good work of the kingdom of God who are bringing about mercy and compassion and justice to the world who are described as righteous and placed in the favorable position. So those who are described as righteous and placed at the right hand come to Jesus and they say, well, Lord, when when did we do these things to you? And I think Jesus here says one of the more revolutionary things that he uh, ever said. He said, whatever you did to the least of these who are members of my family, you did to me. 
Notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, whatever you did to the least of these is like you did it to me. But Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. Meaning Jesus doesn't just like relate with the least of these. Jesus doesn't just merely identify with the least of these. But Jesus in some way embodies the least of these and becomes the least of these. That Jesus enters into the situation, the story, and the circumstances of the least of these. And this begins to influence and shape how Jesus is king. Um, it's a bit like the, the TV show uh, Undercover Boss. Uh, does anybody remember that? It's a pretty compelling idea, right? Uh, you have like a high-level, upper-level management or executive who leaves their corner office and goes and takes on an entry-level job. And they spend a week uh, like embodying what it means to be an entry-level worker in their company or in their organization or their business. And uh, at the end of the week, they head back to their corner office and they begin to like make changes based on this experience of being an entry-level employee. Um, they begin to, to make changes based on what it means to be at the bottom of the organization rather than sitting up in the ivory tower at the top of the organization. And it seems as though what Jesus is communicating in this story is that in some ways he's playing like uh, undercover king. <laughs> that he enters into what it means to be like an entry-level human being. Uh, to enter into the experience of those who have been uh, marginalized, to those who have been like pushed to the edges of the empire, to those who are described as the least of these. And having entered into this position, this is how Jesus actually plans to govern, based on this experience, based on what it's like to be among the least of these. Now for the righteous, this is seen as good news, but for the, ba for the unrighteous, as we'll see in just a moment, is not so good news. <laughs> so Jesus continues on. He says, Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I, I told you it was not good news for them. Uh, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And here we see like this grand reversal of this narrative. Uh, that um, uh, uh, those who are described as righteous experience the same sort of criteria as those who are described as unrighteous. That the, the judgment that is uh, handed to those on the right is the same as those on the left. But instead of being described, uh, described and known for their mercy and compassion and justice, they're known for their lack of mercy, their lack of compassion, and their lack of justice. And notice here like the judgment that's uh, ascribed to them. Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now again, uh, this, much like judge, judgment, is a, a far too big of conversation for the scope of what we have today. But notice that like eternal punishment is some of the strongest language that Jesus uses towards the consequence of being unrighteous or unjust. Uh, and it seems in some way to be like the, the complete opposite of uh, the, the judgment for the righteous, which is eternal life. Meaning like there's some really big consequences 
to pursuing a life of righteousness, mercy, and compassion, and justice, just as there's a pretty big consequence of pursuing a life of a lack of mercy, compassion, and, just, and justice. Now, remember that all of this seems to uh, uh, come in the context of this question of how do you actually plan to govern? And the story seems to suggest that, that Jesus' answer to how, how do you actually plan to govern uh, seems to point to this idea that, that Christ the King governs as the least of these. That when uh, Christ takes his throne, when Christ sits down as king or lord of uh, the entire universe, that this throne isn't in some sort of like ethereal, abstract, heavenly realm, but that this throne is among the least of these. That this throne is among the hungry, um, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the stranger, those, and those who are in prison. This isn't just some sort of like vague um, uh, relating to. This isn't some sort of mere identification with. But it seems as though Christ himself has taken on the form of those who are considered among the least of these. And notice that this is how God brings about ju justice in our world. Again, it's not God sitting in some sort of ethereal, abstract, heavenly throne, uh, cracking the whip and bringing about justice. But it's what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, where God in Christ uh, emptied himself of the equality that comes with being God and instead took on the lowest of form and entered into the situation, the story of the least of these. And in some ways, it seems as though Jesus is marrying his story with the least of these so that the, the story of the least of these is married to the story of Jesus. And now here's the justice part. Because Jesus himself faced an unjust trial and an unjust death. But we recognize that he received the justice due to him from God in the resurrection where he was raised to new life. And now if Jesus has married his story to the least of these, this means that the story of the least of these is married to the story of Jesus. Which means that they too will receive the justice of God, which is called the resurrection. And they too will be raised to new life. This is how Christ the King governs, by becoming among the least of these, by embodying the story and the situation of the least of these. Now, as you might have guessed, um, we have a role to play in all of this. <laughs> um, because as the, uh, later on in the New Testament, we see uh, the Apostle Paul uh, describing all of this beauty of what Christ has done. And he uh, then goes on to say that we are ambassadors of this kingdom. Now, in the first century, to be an ambassador um, was to be like, uh, in some ways, like a physical representation of a king or a Caesar or a, a leader. Um, like, it was to be like a proxy uh, in and of themselves. Like, in some ways, they were seen and treated as if it was Caesar himself there among them. Which means, like, if we are ambassadors, this means that we have some sort of, like, political power and responsibility within this kingdom of God. And if we have some sort of political power and responsibility within the kingdom of God, then this means that uh, this question of how do, you, how do you actually plan to govern is no longer solely directed at Jesus, but instead is flipped around and is directed at, at us as well. And the question becomes, how do we actually plan to govern? Uh, 
And here, I think uh, we would do well to take our cues from Jesus. <laughs> and we ask the question of who are the least of these uh, among us? And I want us to move from kind of an abstract to a concrete. Like, not just like, oh, there's poor people in our city, or oh, there's hungry people in our city, or oh, there's uh, thirsty people in our city. But like, draw to mind a, a name of somebody that you pass on a day-to-day basis. Uh, somebody who's regularly in your life who may be described as the least of these. Think of the, their face. Think of their, their name. Think of their story, if you have it. And what would it mean to begin to see the face of Christ, the King, within them? I'm curious what we would continue to do. What sort of acts of righteousness and mercy and compassion and justice would we continue to do towards them? But I'm curious what we would do different if we knew that that was Christ the King there, rather than just somebody who made a few poor decisions throughout their life. I'm curious how this would begin to shape our understanding of what it means to be righteous or to uh, extend mercy, compassion, or to pursue justice. This past week, as I was studying, uh, I came across a, a quote from a biblical commentator by the name of Anna Case Winters. She writes, uh, we need not worry about the timing of the second coming, which I know for many of us was like, you know, the end-all be-all of our upbringing of faith. (laughs) But she says, we need not worry about that. Christ is already in our midst now and comes to us time and time again, unexpectedly, in the form of the person in need. Our response to the least of these is our response to the judge, and I think we can uh, insert the word king of all the nations. Uh, I'm a big fan of iconography. Um, I I think there's a a beauty in a picture that words can't seem to to touch into. Um, And like we said, today is uh, Christ the King Sunday. And so if you were to Google Christ the King icon, um, you might see something uh, like this. Uh, which is really just like, you know, an earthly king decked out in like some divine attributes, right? <laughs> um, but when I read this quote from uh, Anna Case Winters, this isn't the image that came to mind. But rather the image that came to mind was uh, from uh, a modern iconographer by the name of Kelly Lattimore. Uh, and this was the icon. Um, we see here that this is, uh, as the icon is called, the homeless Christ. And I wonder if um, we would do better to not picture Christ as like this earthly king with divine attributes, but rather to picture Christ as he's depicted here, among the least of these. Because again, this is how Christ the king governs, as the least of these. So what I want to suggest uh, to us is over the next week or so, um, maybe we sit with this picture. You can Google Kelly Lattimore, Homeless Christ, and find it. But sit with this picture and meditate on, on what does it mean to like, um, have this understanding of Christ shape our understanding of righteousness, uh, shape our understanding of mercy and compassion, and shape our understanding of a pursuit of justice. Um, and maybe we can even offer up the prayer, Christ, how might I be an ambassador in a way that pursues righteousness, mercy, compassion, and justice for you. 
Friends, I can't guarantee that this will do, uh, I can't guarantee what this will do in us, um, but I guarantee that this will begin to soften our hearts and begin to shape us and lead us and guide us more and more into the way of Jesus. So, uh, friends, as we wrap up this series on I Pledge Allegiance, um, may we know uh, that the news of the kingdom is the good news. That for those of us who are nervous and uh, overwhelmed and anxious and exhausted and burned by the kingdoms of this world, the systems, the ways of being of this world, uh, that there's good news. That there is a new kingdom, a new system, a new way of being, and we are invited into it. And may we know that pledging our allegiance to this kingdom and to King Jesus uh, saves our souls from all that wants to colonize them. And may we know that we can use whatever power or privilege or influence that we have to um, leading and shaping a more just and equitable society. And may we know that Christ the King um, governs as the least of these. Amen. Uh, As we've done uh, throughout this series, uh, let's end our sermon um, with the We Pledge Allegiance prayer, uh, which uh, comes from the book Jesus for President. Today we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. We pledge our allegiance to peace that is not like Rome's. We pledge our allegiance to the gospel of enemy love. We pledge our allegiance to the kingdom of the poor and the broken. We pledge our allegiance to a king who loves his enemies so much he died for them. We pledge our allegiance to the least of these with whom Christ dwells. We pledge our allegiance to the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations. We pledge our allegiance to the refugee of Nazareth. We pledge our allegiance to the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head. We pledge our allegiance. To the cross rather than the sword, we pledge our allegiance. To the banner of love above any flag, we pledge our allegiance. To the one who rules with a towel rather than an iron fist, we pledge our allegiance. To the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse, we pledge our allegiance. To the revolution that sets both oppressed and oppressors free, we pledge our allegiance. To the way that leads to life, we pledge our allegiance. To the slaughtered lamb, we pledge our allegiance. And together we proclaim his praise from the margins of the empire to the centers of wealth and power. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Amen.